Ravenel, these are master manipulators. They have this conspiracy going all across America to try and convince people that in democratic states they're not as safe. Well, guess what? We are now entering the home stretch ahead of the midterm elections. For months, political analysts have said a red wave is coming. A referendum on inflation, illegal immigration, indoctrination. How are Democrats mitigating that red wave? It's why people don't trust people like you because you peddle false narratives. And so we disabuse you of those narratives. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. Here we are one week before Election Day. That's right. It's it's the final countdown. That's what we're in right now. Ooh, boy. boy. It's really hard to believe it's here. It really is. And I know there's been a lot of hard work going on from all the minions. Everybody's mm-hmm. listening to this and, and everybody is on the show. Uh, it's been a year and a half of, of really gearing up and putting lead on the target here. And it's all come down to this. That's right. And again, thank you so much. Like, we keep getting reports from campaigns being like, hey, are you guys aware that the minions put up like 50,000 calls this weekend? Yeah. And that's huge. And that's what it's all about. So thank you so much to our listeners. Totally. Most powerful force in American politics. That's right. No question about it. We're going to keep you going with a very high energy, entertaining program here today. Uh, At long last, one of, I think, probably one of our most highly sought interviews in a while. I mean, we've had basically everybody there's to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we've been hearing a lot about this one. Uh, And Carrie Lake is on the program today. Yes. Carrie Lake is on the program From the today. state of Arizona, <laughs> future governor Carrie Lake. She brings a lot of energy, uh, and you'll enjoy that at the bottom of the program. We also have Senator Tom Cotton, the old friend of the program, our first guest, I think now our, our most frequent guest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a surprise appearance at our live show in D.C. The guy's been on the program a few times. He has. He has. He's got a new book out. And i got to tell you, for those of you who are looking for a little serious component in a very unserious world right now where you are led to believe the only thing that matters is j6 and abortion uh listen to what tom cotton has to say in this interview about foreign policy how it roots back to democrat liberal views of america and how they've sort of exercised that throughout the course of of our american history and, and what's happening now with the military and how you can kind of predict foreign policy under democratic rule as a result it's fascinating Mm -hmm. uh the guy in addition to being a total hero is very smart so you got to look at look out for that uh we have a sponsor for today's program that's right masterworks is back we'll talk about that in a little bit uh and also hey thanks to hugh hewitt for the shout out smug you gotta love it yeah friend of the program He's got, you know, and he, he likes your Twitter feed. As does Tucker last week. He was highlighting your Twitter feed on his on his particular program. And, and thank you so much to Tucker. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's it's an, an interesting time because right before the election, Elon Musk decides, you know, I'm willing to spend $40 billion for free speech to exist. Yeah. And there is nothing that's got the Dems so mad because they're like, oh, no. We have to, like, keep everyone silent so we can win elections. What's going on? Yeah. It's amazing. Amazing. No, it really is incredible. We're going to cover that in some detail. Obviously, the Pelosi news over the weekend. Everybody's been following that. We'll cover that. Got some election updates. I mean, you need everything here. Yeah, we do. Anything you need on a a Tuesday. Right, ready to fire away for the rest of the week. Let's start with Twitter. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think this is, I mean, look, um, not everybody's on Twitter. No. Right, and in fact, I would imagine a small fraction of our audience is on Twitter, 
those who are are probably prolific users. Most of the minions are pro- prolific users. That's right. But it's not evident to everybody why this shit matters that Elon Musk took over Twitter. Smug, perhaps you can give us just sort of a primer off the top on what's happening here and why it's important, why we give a shit. Sure. So uh, a little bit of background um, for folks who are not familiar with Twitter. Um, The interesting thing about Twitter is it's a very unique social network in the sense that it's not like just like Facebook or Instagram, which is basically just like your friends that you're interacting with. It's where a lot of journalists hang out and spend their day, for better or worse. And politicians. And politicians. And uh, I think we saw a a small indication of the power of Twitter that, you know, President Trump used it to just steamroll everyone on his way to the White House. So it's where kind of like uh, the sausage is made, where, where the public discussion of politics and issues takes place. And I think over over the past years, I'd probably say maybe like five years ago, it became very clear that the scales were starting to get tipped, that uh, the, the, the people in charge at Twitter were trying to essentially silence any opposition to the left-wing view on things. And you it went know, from like a digital town hall to a digital town hall if it was at DNC headquarters. Exactly. So right. it became very clear, like I hear it all the time, uh, from listeners uh, of the program, and you see it in our, our five-star reviews, when when Twitter's mentioned, they say, oh, you know, like, uh, I just got thrown off of Twitter for saying I support Trumper. It was it was insane, the, the clampdown that took place. And so we're now in, in almost like a new world. The dynamics have completely shifted where it was instant. Like, uh, the second that Elon walked in, so so this is from, from news reporting, uh, Elon purchases Twitter. He walks in. He instantly tells the CEO and uh, Vijaya, who was, who was like the, the 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 lawyer who was in charge of like trust and safety, who who tweeted out her pride or, or in interviews expressed her pride at getting Trump kicked off of Twitter, <laughs> and essentially trying to do everything she could to stifle conservatives from having a voice. He he, he uh, had security get them all out of the building, um, and right off the bat, he brings in Tesla engineers, and they start looking at the source code. And they freeze out all of Twitter's existing engineers from altering the source code, right? Uh-huh. It's a very sharp move. And what they discover is, okay, there's a lot of things here that we can fix. So what I've seen in some reporting is there's essentially a dream team right now mm. there at, at Twitter HQ. You've got David Sachs, who's been on the program. He's a friend of the program. Friend of the program. Uh, you've got Sri Ramakrishnan, who was at Twitter, now at uh, Andreessen Horowitz, who's there helping out. Um, you've got Elon there, you've got his engineers, and now you're going to see what an actual free speech open marketplace of ideas looks like. And and the journalists are instantly horrified because they've gotten used to being like, we should be allowed to be unopposed. You know, they, they've gotten very used to there's only one view that is acceptable to be expressed, and that's, you know, the Democrat well, Party. Well, it's interesting talking. that you say that because this is anecdotal. I don't obviously know what the algorithms are or how they've adjusted them over the years. But anecdotally, when I first got on Twitter and spent, you know, a lot of time there because, like you said, all the journalists were there and I it was in political communications I had frequent interactions with journalists. In fact, that was like the vast majority of my timeline Mm -hmm. was journalists and what they were saying and my responses and everything else. And over the last couple of years, it sort of vanished. Like I got to kind of go to go look for journalists and what they're saying. Like if I see a big news story that I definitely disagree with, I actually have to go look up their handle to find 
the tweet and I follow them, but I got to go find their stuff, right? And what, what it suggests to me, and I don't know, again, I don't know if this is true or not, but what it suggested to me was that they have their own little echo chamber and I have mine. It, and, they, and they've adjusted something where I can't interact or I have at least less of an opportunity to do that as I used to do. So this is something that you think I, there's truth to that. So I've, I've heard this from some folks um, who, who are uh, over involved at Twitter. And I've heard this from a lot of reporting that's come out is it became very evident that yes, the, the algorithm which determines because by default, Twitter will show you tweets not based chronologically, not like in the order that tweets come in from everyone you follow, but an algorithm is in place to decide what you see. Mm-hmm. And over the past few years, that has essentially completely bottlenecked conservatives. Yeah, I think there's been three stages to this. I think stage one of Twitter, like Twitter 1.0, was Twitter was basically an RSS feed that you subscribe to people's feeds. Mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. got those tweets chronologically right, right. from the people that you chose to follow. And then I think Twitter 2.0 was more the algorithm, you know, tailoring content to what you would be most likely to engage in. And of course, there's a lot of economic reasons why a platform would do that. And it's not just Twitter that does that. There's plenty of platforms that do that. In fact, giving you more of what you want is a is a sound business decision. Mm -hmm. There's obviously a lot of things downstream of that that impact things like your mental health. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason why it would be that would be done. Now, my speculation is that there was then this Twitter Mm 3.0, which was algorithm plus where some thumbs could be put on scales to amplify the content of people deemed valuable to the ecosystem Mm. so that's how if you're a regular person getting on for the first time your feed is full of john fetterman's press secretary correct robert reich who to follow who to follow people who no one would follow in a million years if they had 10 brain cells (laughs) and so but that's who twitter would recommend and that's what twitter amplifies and so essentially i mean it's what has happened is that so elon musk has very quickly uh just taking charge over there this is not like you know a, a standard kind of like a company takeover where you expect that like turning the boat around is going to take like a year or anything he's demanding very quick changes and he's brought people aboard to help make sure those changes are executed this is from a washington post article it says uh the first round of layoffs led by his uh lawyer elon's uh, alex spiro will target 25 percent of the workforce uh it says longtime so- uh, musk associate and friend of the program david sachs uh appeared in a company directory over the weekend according to photos obtained by the washington post uh, both had official company emails, and their titles were staff, software engineer. Like he's bringing in such heavy hitters. Yeah, these are that's a serious heavy. Yeah. yeah, this is this is someone from, like there's uh, this what's called the PayPal mafia that Musk was a part of because he was one of the original people yep. in PayPal. David Sachs was there, Peter Thiel was there. You've got like you know the beating heart of a lot of the technologists who helped create our modern Silicon Valley are now coming back. It, it, I mean, it's just like the dream team being assembled. And these are people who are completely focused on evening, you know, or making the battlefield even. Like, everyone should be allowed to have a say in a, a, a public square. Um, in other words, look, why it's important to you is that it doesn't give weight right. to what Democrats right. are saying. It's not that it amplifies anything that Republicans are saying. And like people have gotten Elon wrong from the very beginning. This is not a conservative dude, right? He's got a libertarian 
bent, but he's very committed to like, I don't know, freedom of speech, for mm-hmm. example. I mean, this really does feel like a $40 billion investment in the freedom of speech. That's it. That's the thing is, um, I, so I think uh, one of the news items that recently came out is uh, the idea has now been put forward that blue checks, you know, the verif- verified individuals on Twitter, it should now become uh, part of like a subscription program where they pay $20 a month. For yeah. It, right. So initially I'm like, yes, he's, he's actually literally making the blue <laughs> checks paid. But this is this goes beyond just like uh you know any kind of a lot of the discussion that you've seen from journalists talking you know the standard blue checks their discussion is like i can't believe he would do this to us you know like the 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 entitlement that these folks have had for so long of being unopposed is incredible um but and they all say and they all like the hollywood version like we're dealing with the political version of twitter right the hollywood version of twitter of course is aghast by all of this and the headlines over the weekend hollywood reporter and everything all the people who are leaving twitter because they can't envision a scenario where they're actually challenged and and the beauty of it is like all you see all these accounts which are like well i am leaving twitter and then like three hours later they're they're still on they're they're still on uh (laughs) it's incredible so i actually dug into the numbers so uh, I kind of have a feeling this may have been some of their thinking. So, so this is uh, this, these numbers from statistics: the annual net income or loss uh, for for Twitter in 2021. Their annual net loss was 221 million dollars. Right. So, if you charge these blue checks 20 a month for 12 months, that's 240 a pop. Let's say you can only get a million of them, only a million blue checks, to or a million people to be willing to pay to be verified. So you get 240 uh, uh, from them, a million of them. That's 240 million dollars, and Twitter is profitable. No, it's, I love it. I, yeah, so I, he, I love it. I, I really hope incredible. he does it. Incredible! Like so quickly, the changes that he's putting in place to turn a company that was, by all accounts, it was bloated. It was. It was. Uh, th- there's reports in this Washington Post article that they had members of the sales team who are earning earning more than 300,000, more than some of the engineers there. Wow. Well, he's, what are they selling? They stopped average political advertising whatsoever, it's, right? I it's mean, incredible. So it's been a bloated company for so long that's essentially had become a mouthpiece for the DNC. So right? if, if each each journal has to pay twenty bucks a month to keep their uh, their blue check, yeah, how how are these newspapers going to afford it? Because they're struggling to get <laughs> subscribers at five bucks a month. Well, the beauty of it is, is that you know journals cry about that kind of garbage. They'll expense it, and then one hundred percent. But expense is going to be these newspapers are already running well, in the red. I'm well, going. That's a, I think, I, I that's think, a lie, Ashbro. But I think, I think your I think your journal buddies uh, Hans, have lied to you. Hansborg Vice is going to pay for it. I well, he's going to pay for it. But the New York Times turns a profit. The Washington Post, owned by Bezos, turns a profit. Look, so okay, so I will be I will be a journalist. And I will be walking into you, my editor's office. Let me tell you how I'm going to say it. I'm going to say, sir, we have a problem. There is this platform that is a blood sport panopticon that (laughs) I have opted into for my entire audience. And if you look at the analytics on our website and check out the referral traffic from Twitter, you'll realize how important it is that I remain addicted to this platform. <laughs> so I'm going to need to expense my blue check mark, and you need to pay for it. Yeah, it's 100%. You That's know what's what, going to happen. You know what the old school editors would have said? Fuck you, go call a source. Those editors are gone. Do you know yeah, they're calling the shots of these papers? Slack. It's people like Taylor Lawrence. Yeah, the Slack channel. 
We're yeah. like, I need a blue, I need a blue check because. But I'm Holmes, Holmes has a blue check and a blue Holmes, check can help me. Well, would you pay? Would you pay for your blue check? Absolutely, under no circumstances. Yeah. would I pay for a blue check. But but here's the thing: I got a, a blue check. I think you probably were got me the blue check. I was instrumental in that. Yeah, I, I pressed the internet button so when I had a whole bunch of people sort of impersonating right. me during various campaigns, and it was sort of hard to tell because they used my picture yeah. and my name that it was hard to tell if it was me or not. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I can see where that becomes a little bit of an issue here because it's not like everybody does it professionally on Twitter. There are a lot of people who do it because they just want to stay informed or stay a part of the conversation. But like, once you become too good of a part of a conversation, the left all of a sudden adopts your picture and your name and says a bunch of shit that you never said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So for me, I've I've had this like ongoing kind of a scenario where. A lot of minions have asked me, like, why don't you get a blue check? Like, Twitter sent me this email. They're like, would you like to get verified? Now, you know, you have a... I would have loved to have seen how they verify comfortably smug. Well, so, so I, I, I sent this reply email to them, and this is what I stand by. As I said, I want you to release every minion who's been locked up, everyone who you have banned from this platform. What a hero. And once you do that, I will be more than happy to take that blue check, I right? bet you didn't get a reply. They, they absolutely did not reply to that. <laughs> And so here's the thing is, so now Elon's announced that unless someone has done some like criminal level like behavior. The shit Twitter, that was supposed to actually exactly, be. Right. He's going to put everyone who's been banned back on the platform. And if that's the case, if all those locked up minions are back, I would be more than happy to pay 20 a month because I, I, I want to support a business because it's so rare. This is a business that actually believes that people in a society deserve to be heard. It's that it should not good, only be like, I'm a journalist, a I deserve a voice. Everyone in this country deserves a voice. You mm-hmm. raise a good Patriots point. Patriots died for this country, so we all have a voice. It's actually, a, I may change my opinion on that based on what you just said. That, that does, look. But while we're at it, right? So Elon gets in a ton of trouble. Of course, he's got a huge target on his back now, right? Because we know what the left does which is basically if you challenge conventional wisdom or their narrative about literally anything in this country you're a danger right that's 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 their play and that's what they're talking about when we've had like kevin mclaughlin on talking about those amy klobuchar bills and and klobuchar said again over the weekend by the way she was very concerned about the elon musk acquisition because of content moderation yeah we want to keep people safe safe right word that safety thing is just like Basically, they just want no opposition to their views. Right. Why there's any Republicans who play footsie with that shit? It, it, I don't. Yeah. I have no idea. Should not be done. I have no idea, and I and I'm fairly tolerant with like you know different yeah, perspectives. If, if you're, but that's not one of them. If 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 you're counting on the woman who eats salad with a fork and berates her staff to keep you safe with, with a comb. comb, she yeah. doesn't even use a fork. She's a barbarian. Oh, oh no, yeah, with a comb. With, yeah, yeah. That's right, right. Yeah, you no, know, she's not exactly in line. Right. So anyway, he tweets out uh, sort of a I don't know if he was half joking or whatever but it it basically challenged the media narrative of what was happening with the attack on Paul Pelosi and the courage to reply to Hillary Clinton when I mean I don't need to tell folks that's probably a very dangerous decision is challenging Hillary Clinton yeah there's my opinion has a history of being a very dangerous individual (laughs) parody parody we're laughing we're laughing but it is a dangerous thing yeah especially if you're a left-handed former legal counsel to the White House (laughs) 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 parody 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 we're laughing at the GW Parkway somebody somebody tweeted immediately after Elon Musk did not kill himself (laughs) (laughs) but anyway they then use 
his pointing out that there were pieces of this story that didn't make total sense into basically leverage of saying Elon Musk is going to use the platform for disinformation. Right. Right? Which is hilarious because, the, I mean, look, the media would not be in this position in terms of it having, you know, more than half of this country up in arms with everything that they say and not believing it if they didn't have total misinformation right. over the last, like, I don't even know how long. I mean, you can go back all the way to, like, Dan Rather in 2004, you know, reporting on George W. Bush's military service. Right. This has been a long time coming. Mm-hmm. But anytime there is a moment of maximum impact on Republicans, the disinformation out of mainstream media is omnipresent. Right. Right. If you be- if you don't if you don't believe us, go to the WashingtonPost.com, go to NewYorkTimes.com, check out AP, check out a whole bunch of stories this week, right? Because they're on the verge of getting their asses kicked in a midterm election, and they're throwing everything they've got. That's right. All kinds of stories. There was a hilarious story today. Adam Laxalt had a a guy who knocked doors on staff for a couple of weeks back in, like, the summer, and they fired him. And, of course, there was, like, some obscure publication that wrote a story about what this guy's had on his Twitter account. Some anonymous Twitter account? Yeah, some anonymous Twitter account. And that's now, like, his national national news? We got calls. There was calls from the Washington Post. (laughs) The Washington Post and CNN want to report on a door knocker that yeah. was fired months ago. Right. What he has done on a Twitter the, account this is, is anonymous. This is what I mean. A week I before the election. A week before the election. Like, right. That is what we're dealing Those with. Those are here. the issues that matter to the voters. This is what I mean. This is every journalist lives on Twitter. Yeah. For better or for worse. Because for worse, there's a lot of journalists who have had their brains fried on there. And it's gotten worse when it's only one side on there. Because they think only they're right. Like uh, it was Josh Barrett who had this very interesting article that he he put out there uh, in the past couple of days, where he said the problem right now with the left is they've only surrounded themselves with people who agree with them and have come to the conclusion that anyone who disagrees is a threat and should be removed. Like it, all of us, you know, all our listeners, especially you know, we're getting closer to Thanksgiving. You go visit your family. Of course, you've got your like left-leaning cousin or whatever, and you're like, oh, they're a hippie, whatever, I'm going to break bread, right? The difference is that the left is conditioning their side to be like, what? This person doesn't agree with me? They must be a dangerous insurrectionist. Silence them. Exactly. No matter what, at all costs, silence them. So anyway, how this parlays itself into the Pelosi story is obviously everybody's been following this. It's impossible not to. The media has made this the number one story. And look, let me say at the outset, I don't know what exactly happened other than what the facts are that have been reported Mm -hmm. and the police report and everything else. And that's an important component to this because the police report in and of itself is sort of the news. Yes. Because the translation from the news business one week to go before the midterm and like what the actual police report says are oftentimes not in concert yeah right it's very odd so so anyway anywho we are now in a situation where nancy pelosi's husband was attacked on friday and and let me say at the outset that's horrible totally political Mm -hmm. violence is awful and when it happens to paul pelosi when it happens to steve scalise when it happens to brett kavanaugh when it happens to anyone in the public sphere, 
that's a dangerous thing that we have to take account for. Like no, I, say, I say, I say violence because we'll, we'll talk about this. But I don't know if it. I, I think ascribing it to politics as political violence, I think, has been a huge problem. That that journalists have done is, we have a horrible situation where an elderly man was was hit with a hammer. Right. That's clear. That's undisputed. What's wild is you've seen journalists instantly leap. Right. And there say, it is. Half this country so that's what is my responsible. Wind, that's what my wind up with is. My right. wind up for this is. To set that aside for a moment, because we all agree on that point, mm -hmm. what has enraged me beyond a thousand suns, and I know both, all of you guys feel the same way, is how quickly, and the Washington Post did this within like a six-hour term, <laughs> right? Insane. Was to say that ads that Republicans ran in 2010, yeah, and their criticism of Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House were responsible for yeah. what happened. Yes, right. I mean, where the fuck do you want to begin with this? Like, where, 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 how, I don't, I honestly don't know where. To... I, I think a, a really great starting point and it relates to our show is friend of the program, Michael Schellenberger. He's right. out there in the area and does a very rare thing. He does journalism. So he goes out and he interviews people who know the assailant. People who are neighbors. Friends, associates. Turns out he wasn't a right winger. That's the thing. Is like he's like, so uh, he occasionally lived in this like kind of a nudist commune that has like a, a, a BLM uh, signs and like a, a pride pride flag. flags. Yep. And the neighbors were like, yes, they were known. They they would like you know trip on shrooms and everything. Well, they were nudist activists. They, they were nudists. They they there's photos of this guy who uh, uh, the assailant. Uh, at City Hall, at like, you know, one of these these nudist freedom kind of uh, wedding. I mean, it's very clear this guy's just like a wild hippie, right? Yeah. Schellenberger says it's very clear when every neighbor's like, this person took a ton of crazy ass, like, cycle, you know, whatever drugs that everyone has ascribed that it became a problem. That this person very clearly uh, is motivated by a, a level of psychosis. And taking drugs. Right, right. But back to Holmes's point, they very, I was just marveling at how quickly the media was able to draw like very clear through lines in the brain of a man who sounds like he's a paranoid, paranoid schizophrenic. schizophrenic. Right, right. Like he's, he's drug induced or not. Right, right. He's, he has said crazy, crazy shit, obviously. But they can, without any interviews, without any background from, you know, some clinical psychologist who's interviewed this man. They can draw a clear through line from ads in 2010 with flames around Nancy Pelosi and this lunatic hitting Paul Pelosi with a and, hammer. And here's the thing. Is, I mean, without like, any detail whatsoever, right, right. And the point is, when I tell you that I don't know, that's correct. But also, they don't know. They don't know. And, they don't know. Right. And they're doing this without any reporting. And, and I had, an incl I had a, a feeling right off the bat that, here we go, they are going to 100% blame this right. on half the country. <laughs> And so uh, someone sends me a link to this guy's website that he had up. Uh, I check out his website. Within the past couple of weeks, he has these posts where he's like fairies, like, you know, the little flying, you know, Peter Pan type of things. He's like, I see many fairies. Fairies are trying to like control our society. I know fairies are like trying to control my actions. It's like, okay. He's having a psychotic break. This is right. very clearly I just, he didn't a watch, conservative. He didn't, like, watch, he didn't watch a 30 second ad on Fox News and be like, he's like you I'm know ready. what? 
you know what? It's the Republicans make a lot of sense. Now's the time. Yeah. But but the way that the media had instantly pivoted to this, and it was the usual suspects. It, it was it was clowns like that guy Ben Collins. Yeah. Who 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 peddles himself as some kind of like a disinformation expert, going on the news and being like, oh gosh, it's evident that this was a very you know right wing deranged individual. Uh, you, you saw, of all people, I, I was surprised Ashley Parker at the New York Times puts out this article where she was like... Post. Uh, she's at the Post or, now. Is she at the Post? Oh, yeah. she's at the Post now. Uh, puts out this article where she was like, yes, uh, uh, K-Mac uh, gave a, a news conference 10 years ago <laughs> saying that uh, uh, it's time well, to defeat Pelosi. And it's like, yes, let me I'm just sure read- this like nudist hippie on mushrooms 10 years ago sees a news conference and is like, in 10 years, I will attack. He's like all over C-SPAN. No, so so let me just read two headlines to give this framework that you need. New York Times writes, right away, Pelosi, comma, vilified by Republicans for years, comma, is top target of threats. Okay, let me leave that there for a second. Post, attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband follows years of GOP demonizing her. Okay. Now, this is why you listen to the Ruthless Variety program, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because we have some viewpoint into this, and some of us have been sort of on the inside of these sort of things. Um, I have no doubt that there are tons of daily threats against Nancy Pelosi, as there were when I was chief of staff for Mitch McConnell. That was not a gender issue. That was not a class issue. That is by being in the news with viewpoints that, you know, 40% of the population find offensive and, you know, 20 find horribly offensive, right? That's just kind of what happens, right? That's why the president has secret service. Correct. It's why you have security details for congressional leaders. It comes with the job. I'm not saying that's good. It's not good. But to suggest for a minute that Republican campaigns are the reason that Nancy Pelosi is a threat target flies in the face of everything that I know about the security threats. And Like, of course she is. She is the Speaker of the House, right? I mean, I bet you Chuck Schumer does too. It, it really upset me in that article when they said uh, she's, a, uh, she's a class target because she's like a, a wealthy liberal in San Francisco. It's like you're really trying to tell half the country to shut up and feel guilty. Right. About, because, about not listen, liking Nancy Pelosi. About not li- like, she's a millionaire. You got you to gotta stop being me too. Like, what kind of logic and reasoning is this that they're trying to cobble together uh, right before an election right. that numerous projections show the Democrats are going to get shellacked? That, like, you're, you're seeing journalists being like, why are Republicans running ads? Well, so 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 the takes get even worse from no. there, fellas. Do, is, are, you, are you suggesting? I'm a suggesting game? a game. <laughs> I, we haven't played this wow. one in a while, uh, and on this topic, we must play it. Demo Journo. Yes. Demo Journo. Demo Journo. Demo Journo. Demo Journo. Demo Journo. Demo Journo. Demo journal. Nobody knows. Mm, wonderful. <laughs> it's, it is music to my ears. It's nice. I love this game. Um, so, yeah, as I was watching just like 
all of this uh, reporting come across the timeline over the weekend. I felt like we had to had to do some reporting of our own. So, you know, for our new listeners who maybe aren't familiar with this game, um, our contestants here, Holmes and Smug, uh, need to decide who is the dem operative out of four statements that I read. The other three are written by journalists. And very quickly, you'll realize it's hard to tell the difference. Yeah. It's very hard. Like, in terms of, of uh, difficulty, claim to fame is a very tough game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This one might be tougher. Yeah. I mean, Veep or Veep, very tough game. This one might be tougher. This is like the triple sow cow. This is this is the hardest of the games, and I yeah. think it was our first game, by the way. Was it? I and, think so. And, and uh, so when we had Tucker Carlson on, he he had these like sage words of wisdom, where he was like, "The difference between a journalist and an operative is journalists have no shame. They have like they're willing to push anything. They have no self esteem." Yeah, sometimes it's counterintuitive. Sometimes the journalist is, has the more shameless take. <laughs> right. I've seen so much insight in that. Okay, so what do we got? Okay. Statement number one. The would-be Pelosi kidnapper sounds like Fox News and most congressional Republicans for the last 20 years. Oh, my God. That dude. Oh, my God. Please be dem. Please, please. (laughs) Please be a dem. Oh, my God. Statement number two. The Republican Party is mainstreaming menace as a political tool. Oh. Ashbrook, you got the you got. There's some sound bites, folks. Got to hear after this. Okay, that's insane. Oh. statement number three. And this one is uh, attacking friend of the program, Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik denounces violent political acts, but her day-to-day rhetoric may contribute to it. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I want to talk about that one after, too. Yeah. Statement number four. Pelosi is enemy number one, a target of the collective rage, conspiratorial thinking, and overt misogyny. Oh, my God. That has marked the party's hard right turn. Oh. Oh. This is so nuts. Those are your four statements. Can I, can I, get, can I just get... <laughs> I mean, I, hold on. This I, is I, insane. I started blacking out in the first three <laughs> words of the last one. Can you give it one more time? Pelosi is enemy number one, a target of the collective rage, conspiratorial thinking, and overt misogyny that have marked the party's hard right turn. Oh, well, this would certainly put uh, Tucker's view of how this game should be played into the test, right? Yeah. Um, They're all shameless. They're all disgusting people. How how do you... I mean, first of all, you know what we're talking. Now you know what we're talking about. Yeah, right. Yeah. Nobody case, knows. In case you actually didn't follow the news since last Friday, three of these are apparently journalists. Um, Jesus, I guess I'm going to turn my head. Smug. Smug. I've, I've Sm- secretly transmitted. He has secretly transmitted his his position. Okay, I'm turning back around. Um, all right, so. Uh, the sounds like Fox News piece to me. There, there's something about journo and journo culture that they, they're so out of their element when it comes to trying to diagram and understand conservative media mm. that Fox News to that for them is is like shorthand, right. right? Fox News is shorthand to anything that's not like 
a doctrinaire acceptance of a democratic uh, narrative. Well, and then half of the people employed by the rest of the media, apparently all they do every day is watch Fox News and, re- and report about what and happens report on, on Fox News. Yeah. Right? They try to tattletale. They're like, this person, you know, yeah. this news station did not correctly it like is. use the 19, you know, genders it's, or whatever. It really is so funny that there's an entire cottage industry of just like fucking narcs <laughs> who just watch Fox <laughs> News all day. <laughs> complete losers. And they listen I to hope us. you listen to our show. They, they do. Like, you, uh, you narc loser. I've been told Media Matters, you, I know you're listening. You're no, they're horrible people. Listening. Plus, we have Carrie Lake on the program, yeah. so you know yeah. they're all over yeah, it. Yeah, well, your life sucks, dude. Yeah, you're all over it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, listen, if you want to you want to talk with somebody about how to turn your life into something productive, I am sure somebody here would be willing yeah, to donate yeah. right. time. Not for the next eight days, but other than that, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, all right, so f- number one for me is journal, for sure. Um, mainstreaming menace is a political tool I'm going to have to come back to. I'm going to have to come back to. So I thought oh, the problem with a lot of these journos is I think modern journos have this weird insecurity because they were always the dumbest kid. <laughs> so they thought the way to stop trying to be the dumbest kid is to learn big words. So they try to say these things like, you mainstream menace. And they like when they type that out, they're like, I'm so smart. Right? Yeah, it's a nice alliteration. Like there are nine yeah. cats in their apartment are like good job (laughs) (laughs) all right so the third one on stefanic day-to-day rhetoric that strikes me as very journo Mm -hmm. because they do the yes but yep piece Mm -hmm. right and that's what journos do is that they say like yeah she did that and that's my news obligation and then now I'm going to editorialize on what Uh I actually think about yeah right and and, and further I want to give kudos to stefanic because she did the right thing. They they get so mad, and she gets articles like this because she doesn't grovel or play their game. Right. She's like, violence is bad, and everyone knows that's a fact. And, 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 and the fact that if you... There's nothing you can say that the left won't try to blame everything on you. So why give them an inch? So that's... The, yeah, I, I totally agree, Journal. Right. So it, for me, it comes down to four or two. And the thing about number four is that enemy number one and in the conspiratorial piece and the overt misogyny piece, like, to me, there's no journalist who could say something like that. But then, you know, you, we live in the times of, like, John Harwood, mm, for yeah. example, who is, like, actually in his reporting more partisan than your average yeah. Democratic <laughs> operative. Right. Right, so like that's why I'm I'm wrapped around the axle it's on tough. this, and that's why I think I'm gonna go with number two in the mainstreaming menace as the dem operative. Okay. Um. So smug pick number one. So I'm gonna go here through the process of elimination. Number four. Pelosi's enemy number one, a target of the collective rage, conspiratorial thinking, and overt misogyny that have marked the party's hard right turn. That was the Washington Post. Oh my god. I also love this idea that she shouldn't Unreal. be enemy number one. She's Washington been Post. she's been leader of the Democrats since what, two thousand and eight? Yeah. Like of course she she's yes, she's the leader. She's the leader of their entire political movement. Right. And and if you're not across satisfied. three presidents. Like I'm sorry, but like who else are we supposed to pick? That's not misogyny. No. That's 
fucking reality of of she being the leader of the and party. It's, it's it's a tribute to her longevity. It was, <laughs> there we go. Well, what's conspiratorial about it, right? I mean, she's out in the open as the leader of the leftist right. movement that has helped drag the Democratic right. Party to a place where most Americans can't relate to. That's not conspiratorial. That's a matter no, of just, fact. Collective rage. Okay. It's unbelievable. All right. So we're right on that. Yeah. I'm glad. And, okay. So and you now guys, I feel real good. And you nailed you nailed number three there. Um, it's from some journalist. And I, and I appreciate, Holmes, you going through that, you know, denounces and then but yeah. thing. It's like the little pirouette a journalist will do when it's they want the to editorialize. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. So, so this comes down to one and two. Uh, yeah. Smug is right. It was number one. Wow. Number so, two was uh, the, the, the Republican Party's mainstreaming menace as a political tool was the New York Times. Mm. Oh. Lisa Lehrer and that Estead Hernan, Herndon guy. You're kidding me. Yeah. That was in a news article? It was. It was, in fact. Mainstreaming menace as a political tool. Yeah. And therefore, I mean, let's, let's take this back to what led to the game. What they have done with this story is not report the facts, it's attribute the motive. Right. A motive that the police in San Francisco themselves and federal authorities investigating say that they haven't clarified. They don't know yet. They have no idea. The only thing that leaked out was that this guy evidently asked, where is Nancy? Right? According to their reports. But based on that little piece of information, and I don't know how that little tiny piece of information came out and nothing else did about this whole story but based on that they've attributed an entire weekend's worth of coverage the weekend before the midterm elections in the united states of america to the republican party promoting violence right think about that yeah we're living in a world back to the back to the top of our show what we led our show with kathy hochel the the governor of new york saying that Republicans are the, are the masters of disinformation because they've convinced people that cities are unsafe. No, ma'am. The murders and the stabbings and the shoot and the all the shit that we've got, that's why we think the crime is bad, right? I mean, it's not, it has nothing to do with, with our misinformation. But that, I mean, this is what they're trafficking in these days. Right, right. It, genuinely incredible shit, right? Right. It's just the worst thing for our society that the press lets them get away with it. I mean, it, it is what points us towards single-party rule. It's what points the rest of the country toward California. And if, if we do not stand up next Tuesday and, and vote uh, for something different, we're going to get the same old thing. Yeah. I mean, that, it's what it comes down to. It's what it comes down to. Look, all right, Swag, I don't have to tell you, first of all, I know I'm not an investment advisor. You may have been in your previous life. Correct. No longer. But you are no longer. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But I will say it's evident to all of us, uh, Mark, it's not great. Yeah. uh, Anyone who has looked, unfortunately, at their 401k over the past few months probably understands things aren't aren't great. They're, They're not too good in the stock market right now. No, I mean, you're talking about like a third loss, which is a third of your portfolio in a lot of cases, which is, I mean, I don't even want to look at it, but a lot of families, a lot of people, they have to, and it sucks. For those of you who don't, right, and you're looking at a different way to invest your money, 
a different sort of like creative way where you can kind of become involved in an investment opportunity, we've got Masterworks. That's right. And it's fascinating what they've come up with. They've commoditized the art industry, basically. And the average price of fine art is selling for 26% more than this time last year. Amazing when you think about something like art actually gaining value, right? And I mean, I think it's so fascinating because the whole barrier to entry for this market is like, yes, we've known over history, like, oh, you know, this person's got a Picasso. They've got to be doing well, right? You know, that's like a millionaire or a billionaire. Totally. And and, and to get in the door of having a Picasso, which like, I mean, you know, you always see the news. There's another Sotheby's auction, like this Picasso or whatever sold for a hundred million dollars. You're like, okay, well, that's just something for millionaires, billionaires. Well, they came up with the idea, Masterworks, of why don't we, you know, buy one of these pieces, chop it up, and let a bunch of folks get in and invest, get their slice, and then when they sell it, everybody, you know, gets a piece of the action. And they get the returns. Yeah. So in terms of the S&P 500 over the last 26 years, mm-hmm. in fine art, it exceeds it by 131%. Yeah. That's a big number, and, right? And again, the whole barrier to entry is like, well, I'm not a millionaire. How the hell am I buying a, a Banksy or a Picasso? That's exactly right. So we've partnered with Masterworks uh, and and wanted to bring all of this to you because they're offering like an on-ramp, right? There's yeah. a line around the corner to get into this yeah. joint because of the investment opportunity. And again, this is not for somebody who's like literally checking your 401k on a daily basis. I mean, if, if you're doing that, Lord knows there are bigger problems out there. But if you've got money to invest in something, you wanna have some fun doing it, and you wanna get involved in a very unique art investment, uh, I don't think there's another place on earth that does this. It, 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 and again, it's very fascinating. Uh, and if you use our link, you get to cut the line. That's a huge benefit. That is a huge benefit. As recently as October, Masterworks sold a painting for 21.5% net return to their investors, right? So this is this is working for folks, right? So it's a promo code that you've got to use. Promo code ruthless at masterworks.com to join today. You got to see the important disclosures at masterworks.com/cd you got to know how this works in your state, but it's really, really important that you take a look, have you know, kick yeah. the tires, see yeah, what it's worth, it's right and you. if you can have some fun doing it, tell people you own a Picasso. There you go. I mean, what's wrong with that? That's what I want to do. That's the best part. I think we are at a good point to take a maybe a substantive break and talk to Tom Cotton about his new book. All right, let's, let's go to it. I want to welcome to the program a good friend, the first friend of the program, uh, and a good friend to all of us, a hell of a United States senator, and he's written a new book. Tom Cotton, welcome. It's good to be back on the program, Josh. I- I'd forgotten, I guess, that I was the first guest a couple of years ago. You you were the absolute first guest. It was about this time of year, actually, uh, which, you know, at that point we were going for your political insights. And I may, you know, let, let's just start this before we get into your book, it, which is fascinating and I love it. Just give us a lay of the land. What's your view of what's going to happen here next Tuesday? Uh, I think we're going to win everywhere, Josh. I mean, the American people are sick and tired of Joe Biden's 
ideological agenda and the consequences uh, it's created for their lives. I mean, normal people in Arkansas and all across the country can't afford groceries. They can't afford gas. They can't afford the rent. They're worried about their kids' uh, safety when they go to a park or walk to school. They see a wide open border uh, that's caused 5 million illegal aliens to enter our country with crime, and especially with drugs, most notably fentanyl, one of the deadliest uh, epidemics we've ever faced in America. And they see Joe Biden's bumbling around the world that has um, humiliated America in so many points, especially in Afghanistan last year, as I described in Only the Strong. So they want to check and balance uh, on this administration. They're sick and tired of unified democratic control in Washington. So I, I think we're going to have a big night. Um, I, I wouldn't hazard to put a guess on how many House and Senate seats uh, will win, but we're going to win a majority in both chambers. And I don't think it's going to be a small majority either because the American people are ready uh, to pump the brakes on Joe Biden's agenda and turn the corner for America. Oh, your lips to God's ears, Tom. That is that is I, what I sincerely hope is going to happen because we, like you said, we can't afford to do anything like we've done over the last two years. Part of that is what you've written about here and the book, which I've got right right here. If you notice, I've been thumbing through. I, you know, this is one of those times a year. It's very difficult for me to find time to just like read a book like it needs to be read. But I, I not only are you a good friend, I think you're a smart guy. And so I've gone through a whole bunch of this. And wow, it's just a, it's just a really, really good story. It's called Old, Only the Strong, and it comes out today. Yeah, so in, in Only the Strong, I kind of lay out the history of the progressive left's plot to sabotage American power. Going back to Woodrow Wilson, the most ideological president we've ever had, up through most notably Barack Obama, um, another very ideological president, and his understudy, Joe Biden. Um, I remember last uh, August, so many Americans asked me, how did this happen? How did we lose to a band of medieval savages in Afghanistan? And that really reflected a lot of questions I'd received in recent years in Arkansas and on the campaign trail around the country. You know, how do we get to the point where we let BLM riders tear down statues of our heroes, you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and U.S. Grant? where we allowed schools to indoctrinate our kids with critical race theory or radical gender ideology, where we totally opened our borders uh, to anyone who wanted to cross them. And the answer is this is all happening on purpose. The Democrats um, have pursued policies that they know will undermine American power because they are at best ambivalent about America and openly hostile to the sources of American power. Um, a indomitable military, a free, strong, prosperous economy, strong borders, American sovereignty in the world. Uh, they think America and the world would be much better off if we were just a normal nation, if we pulled in our horns and atoned for our sins and acted more like, say, the Netherlands. Um, I think your listeners and most Americans think that America is an exceptional nation and that we have prospered greatly and the world has prospered by having a United States-led international order over the last 75 years. Certainly much better than it would have been having a Soviet Russian order or now a world order led by the Chinese communists. Yeah, no, I mean, look, what makes your fat, your your story and your point of view on all of this so fascinating is you've lived that life, right? And you open up with your experience serving in Iraq. Um, and I, I, I just, can you talk for a minute about how your personal experience um, has sort of formulated your view and you went back to Afghanistan about how uh, Democrats basically have 
have begun to just sort of tear at the social fabric of our military and everything and put us in a position of just existential weakness. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of people have implied or, or said uh, in, in the media and political debates that I have uh, strong and uh, deeply held views about a, a assertive, confident American foreign policy because I served in the military. Uh, it's actually the exact opposite of that. I, I served in the military because I have those views. Mm, right. I, I was I was raised in, in a family and in a hometown in an area that may not have been terribly political. In fact, most people were Democrats, but they were conservative with a small C, very traditional, very patriotic. You know, we said the Pledge of Allegiance in the mornings. We saluted the flag when it came by. We honored our veterans. And we believed unabashedly when, when I was a kid in what Ronald Reagan said is that the Soviet Union was an evil empire. And our goal in the Cold War should be we win and they lose. Likewise, I, I never had any doubts about America or about the attacks we had suffered on 9-11. Unlike, say, Barack Obama's self-selected pastor, Jeremiah Wright, who, remember, said that was not right. America's chickens coming home to roost. Right. That, um, that God didn't bless America, but rather he damned America for our sins and our crimes. You hear a lot of those echo, echoes today from the radical left, from people like the squad in the House of Representatives or the New York Times 1619 Project that believes America is a deeply, deeply flawed, sinful, hateful place. Our founding is even worse, and that therefore uh, we should undermine American power, when in fact what makes America safe free and prosperous. And what helps maintain world order and peace is a strong America. Now, the, the hardest, toughest edge of that strength is the American military. It's far from the only source of our power, you know, whether it's strong, prosperous economy, American energy production, sovereign borders, and leadership in the world. But the American military is the foundation of all our power. That's why the Democrats, anytime they come to office, just like birds flying south for the winter, invariably cut the defense budget. It's why they also use the military for social engineering, imposing political correctness on it. You know, today it's struggle sessions, like something out of Mao's cultural revolution <laughs> with critical race theory and gender ideology or undermining standards so they can get what they think are the right number of women and ground combat roles, as I explained, and only the strong. When even women who have achieved those high standards that we once had in ground combat roles say that this is unethical and it's dangerous, dangerous for our country, dangerous for our military, dangerous to those women who are in those roles. But the Democrats know if you have a strong military, it's kind of like what Bob Gates said, a cocked weapon laying around for any president to use, like Ronald Reagan used it repeatedly in Grenada or against Iran, against Libya or Donald Trump when we killed Iran's terrorist mastermind. And one way to ensure that doesn't happen in the future is to neuter our military, as I explained, and only the strong. Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating because you're right. It is generations and generations of Democrats attempting to try to do the same thing vis-a-vis -vis the military when they get into power versus what Republicans traditionally do is just strengthen the uh, Department of Defense and, and everything that comes underneath it. But there's also this just sort of rhetorical piece that accompanies that. And I saw in one of your early chapters, you know, you're referencing like John Kerry and his post-Vietnam discussions, right? I mean, tell us about how sort of rhetorically they're attempting to try to convince the American people of the weakness of America. 
you know, John Kerry served in Vietnam, but then he came home to America and he began to condemn his fellow veterans. He didn't just say the war was unwise and we should get out of Vietnam or the war was being executed unwisely and we should execute it a different way. No, he, he condemned America's veterans. You know, he, he said that they had been commit, committing war crimes on a systematic scale. He testified in front of Congress to that. Uh, when the Senate actually investigated it, they uh, proved that there was no such thing happening. Have American soldiers committed crimes in war? Of course, that happens. However, the American military justice system has held them accountable, unlike, say, the Soviet Russian system or the communist Chinese system. Uh, John Kerry even went so far to supposedly throw his medals away in protest of the Vietnam War. Of course, we learned later that he threw someone else's medals away, just proving <laughs> that John Kerry is as big a phony back then as he is now. But you still see the same kind of rhetoric today. I mean, I, I constantly hear in the United States Senate from Democratic senators about how the military is full of sexual predators, that's full of racists and extremists and white nationalists, which is simply false. I mean, the data shows very clearly you are much safer in the United States military than you are on college campuses in America. You know, Joe Biden's Department of Defense launched this year-long witch hunt trying to uh, find, find all these supposed extremists in the military. And of course, it came to nothing. I, I think there were fewer than 100 people that they identified. Most of those people just belonged to ordinary criminal gangs, not to some kind of extremist political organization. Of course, that shouldn't surprise anyone because anyone who served as I have know that you go through fairly extensive screening to include inspection of your body for tattoos at your medical processing station to ensure that you don't have a criminal background, that you don't have extremist ties. Our military, far from being dangerous or, or far from being filled with misfits, is actually filled with our very best young men and women. Well, that's I mean, that's an important point. And one of the things that I take heart in when reading this book is that it's, it's not an all is lost type uh, portrayal. I mean, you're obvious and, and straightforward about your views of what the left is trying to do to our country vis-a-vis -vis the military. But you also talk about your own experience and the experience of the men that you served with, men and women that you served with, and how that's just an entirely different narrative than the one that you hear from Democrats in Washington. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, as I write not only the strong about my time in Iraq and Afghanistan, or for that matter, my time in basic training, uh, the strongest bond that our troops have is with the, the man on their left and their right. And while they fight for the flag and they fight for the country, in, in the heat of combat, that primordial kinship that you feel with your comrades in arms is what sustains you. And, and whether you were black or white or, or brown, that really didn't matter. We knew that we would all bleed the same red if we were wounded, and we all wore the same red, white, and blue on our shoulders. Um, and, and I had Black and Latino commanders and troops, uh, instructors. Um, I, I never once saw anything that I would describe as discriminatory harassment or anything else. Um, now, that probably wasn't the case for someone like Lloyd Austin, the current Secretary of Defense, um, who's a four-star general and therefore served over the last 40 years, or, or Colin Powell, who's written about such things in his memoirs. Uh, I, I regret that that happened to them as young men, that they saw that in our military in the 60s or the 70s. 
However, I think it's a testament to how far both our military and our society has come. I mean, think about it. The military after Major League Baseball was probably the second major institution that was integrated in the 1940s, just about a year after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. The military has nothing to be ashamed about. It has everything to be proud of. It provides a great opportunity for Americans of all walks of life, of all races, of all backgrounds to be able to achieve and succeed based on their own merits. Because yeah, as you that. often heard said in the military, when the ramp drops, the bullshit stops. <laughs> you know, you can't succeed with hashtags or with, uh, you know, faculty lounge talk. You either can perform when you're on the battlefield or you don't perform. And if you perform, you get promoted. It doesn't matter what your race is, what your background is. It is our, our society's ultimate meritocracy. I love faculty lounge talk. That is just a perfect way of putting it. That's exactly what they do. But what I found, and you, you addressed some of this in the book as well, what's so interesting is that the American people are fundamentally not aligned with the liberal left's point of view on any of this stuff, right? And so it's not enough for them to just go out and try to make the case that they ought to do all these things internally within the military and the perspective of of our country writ large, they have to kind of disguise it, right? They got to camouflage it. I saw one one reference you made to the old Michael Dukakis uh, in the tank, right? Which is a perfect for me, one of my earliest political memories. But that's a perfect illustration of how they try to mask their overall view by appearing tough or talking tough, right? Yeah, I have an entire chapter in the book dedicated to what happens when Democrats act tough. Uh, And it actually starts with that uh, Dukakis in the tank moment. Democrats uh, are are pathologically fearful of being perceived as weak. You know, Bill Clinton has a famous aphorism that he says that the American people prefer strong and wrong than weak and right. And and I think he's probably correct about that. But it just gives you an insight into the Democratic mind that it never even crossed Bill Clinton's mind that you could be both strong and right. (laughs) Now, The Dukakis episode is a funny, humorous campaign moment. No big deal, except for sending him off into electoral oblivion. (laughs) What's much more dangerous is when Democrats uh, act tough in in matters of war and peace because Americans end up getting killed and our country is humiliated, whether it was John F. Kennedy in the Bay of Pigs or Kennedy and Johnson in Vietnam, Bill Clinton in Mogadishu, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a very dangerous tendency among Democratic politicians, because in the end, they know that the American people don't want a a weak, apologetic and backpedaling America. They want a strong and confident America asserting our own interest in the world. And a good example of this, Josh, is just the electoral scoreboard from the Cold War. You know, for the first half of the war, from the end of World War II to Vietnam, Democrats did fine. They won three out of five elections. But once the Democrats turned on their war, and really a lot of Democrats turned on our country, starting in 1968, the Democrats lost five out of six elections. Mm-hmm. And almost every one of those was a landslide. And the one election they won in 1976 was just by a whisker, and it was by nominating someone who seemed to repudiate the new left. Now, in reality, he governed as a far-left president, but he seemed to repudiate it. The American people did not again trust the Democrats with the White House until our chief rival, Soviet Russia, literally didn't exist anymore. That's so fascinating. And that history is, and look, it's 100% true. You translate a lot of this into what we're currently seeing out of the Biden administration, right? What's your What's your view of how they're handling foreign policy, military operations, and everything else? 
It's very poor. It's very dangerous. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the most notorious moment was the utter debacle in Afghanistan last August. That is 100% Joe Biden's fault, as I explained, only the strong. He wanted to do this in 2009. Uh, he was a corrosive voice in the Obama White House. I think Bob Gates called him uh, or said that he was subjecting Barack Obama to Chinese water torture. Um, Gates ultimately, or uh, Obama ultimately went with about three quarters uh, of his senior military leaders recommendation in 2009. I think Biden is an insecure leader who's had a chip on his shoulder about that decision in 2009. And for 12 years, he wanted to show that he was right. Well, and and Gates, Barack Obama, he was right. And, and Gates, I think he said at the time, this guy's been wrong about every major foreign policy decision in his entire career, which at that point had spanned 40 plus years, right? I mean, and, and now it's got, 50. Yeah, now 50. He's got and, Incredible. Yeah, and I think the reason, I mean, Joe Biden is a different man than Barack Obama. Barack Obama uh, is a, a much more uh, ideological politician than Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden, I think, has mostly been a weather vane for Democratic Party thinking for most of his career. You know, he started in the post-Vietnam era as a 30-year-old senator as kind of a typical blame America first Democrat. After the first Gulf War in 1991, which he opposed, he reinvented himself as this kind of uh, avenging liberal internationalists, you know, wanting to put troops on the ground in the Balkan wars, despite not having a vital interest there and condemning the first President Bush for not going all the way to Baghdad and removing Saddam. Then he voted most, and then notoriously, he voted for the Iraq war in 2003, and then immediately flip-flopped in 2005 against the war when he became- The most contemptible thing you can do. The most yeah. contemptible thing you can do. Send people yeah. off to war and then defund them. Yeah. So, so, so Biden's a little bit harder to pin down, uh, but in the end, I think- you can say we have the third term of the Obama presidency because so much uh, of the Biden administration is run by the people who were responsible for Barack Obama's uh, policies. And I, I want to be clear uh, about Barack Obama. A, a lot of people on the right say, well, he was naive, he was inexperienced, he was in over his skis and never been anything but a community organizer. I disagree. Barack Obama had an ideological agenda, both at home and abroad, from the earliest days of his presidency, and he pursued it ruthlessly. What looks like incompetence or fecklessness can always be traced back to that ideological agenda. People say, why didn't he get a better deal with Iran? It was a terrible deal. It did nothing to stop their nuclear program. It even accelerated it. The short answer is he didn't want a better deal with Iran. That's the deal he wanted. He wanted to apologize for what he believed America had done wronging Iran going back 70 years. Mm. Or another example. His, resp his response to the Arab Spring, the uprising in so many Arab nations in 2011 against repressive governments. Um, it, it seems totally, totally scattershot and ad hoc. In Egypt, he withdrew support for Hosni Mubarak, who had to resign within days. In Libya, he militarily intervened against Muammar Gaddafi, who was you know, an eccentric megalomaniac dictator, but by that point had been scared straight regarding America, like he was a de facto American ally. Well, at the same time, he stood idly by while Bashar al-Assad in Syria was killing his own people, a country where he had much greater interests than we did in Libya. So it just seems totally ad hoc and all over the map. But what unites those responses? In Egypt and Libya, you had pro-American strongmen. They got overthrown. In Syria, you had anti-American strongman who was aligned with Iran. He got uh, to stay in office. Yeah, Again, that's, that's why I say that he... It was a ruthless pursuit of an ideological agenda. Most normal people would look at Obama's foreign policy record and see smoking ruins all around the world. 
Barack Obama looks smugly on his record of bringing American power low, like a latter-day Ozymandias. He wants Americans to look upon his works in despair. Mm, man, that is, that's some hard truths right there. And if you weave it all together, it's impossible to come to a different conclusion. You're entirely right. Let me ask you this. Um, how does all of this translate into your view of what's happening with Ukraine? Well, Vladimir Putin has always wanted to reassemble the Russian empire, and you can't have a Russian empire without Ukraine, simply too central geographically and strategically and economically to what was once the Russian empire, well before the Soviet Union. Um, my democratic uh, friends in the Senate always hate when I point out that Vladimir Putin seems to invade Ukraine when we have democratic presidents, <laughs> It seems, but he doesn't when we have Republican presidents. Remarkable coincidence. Yeah. So... Um, if I could borrow from, from Churchill, after World War II, he cautioned America in particular, but really the Western world, against encouraging Soviet Russia into what he called temptations to a trial of strength. And, and that's what I think happened in Ukraine. Again, to borrow from Churchill, he said, in retrospect, what would you call World War II? Very easy. The unnecessary war. What you see in Ukraine today is the unnecessary war. But Joe Biden's weakness in the first year of his presidency enticed or tempted Vladimir Putin to go for the jugular to achieve what he had always wanted. From the very first days in his office, what did Joe Biden do? He granted concessions to Russia without anything in return, projecting weakness to Vladimir Putin. So we extended a nuclear arms control treaty with Russia that is not in our interest, and that was Vladimir Putin's number one priority. We allowed him to continue construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We didn't do much in response to things like the colonial pipeline hack. Mm -hmm. we, uh, Joe Biden granted him a glitzy summit in Europe to elevate and confirm his stature as a global leader. Uh, even when he began to marshal troops on Ukraine's border last fall, Joe Biden was slow in providing Ukraine the weapons it would need to deter those troops. Even once the war started, we still began to slowly provided them the weapons that would allow them to defend their territory, as opposed to getting it to them, say, 60 to 90 days later when they had to fight to retake their territory. So the war you see in Ukraine, while it didn't play out the way Vladimir Putin has thought or the, probably the way Joe Biden thought either, uh, it was a war that was totally unnecessary and it hadn't been for the weakness that Joe Biden had projected last year and especially what I call in the book, the Afghan effect, uh, which is going to live with us for a long time, at least as long as Joe Biden is president. I don't think there would be Russian troops invading Ukraine right now. Well, I just totally agree with you. And and we've been saying this basically since the moment they started pulling the troops out of Afghanistan and that horrific tragedy that happened um, for no other reason than just pure political optics. But you're right. I mean, it just it created a vacuum that Putin and Xi and Iran and everyone else wanted to challenge. Yeah. And, and you saw that, too, coming from China as well, one of China's propaganda outlets spoke about the Afghan effect and compared it to the Vietnam syndrome of the late 1970s when communists were rampaging all around the country. Uh, you even had uh, Soviet Russian leaders talking about how they needed to sustain the anti-war fervor in America after the Vietnam War ended um, so notoriously uh, with Joe Biden as a young senator voting to cut off funding for the South Vietnamese government and therefore having to have a last minute emergency airlift off the Saigon embassy, much like we did at the Afghan airport in Kabul last year. Amazing how history repeats itself. If you care at all about foreign policy in our military, you got to read this book. Only the Strong by Tom Cotton. He's one of the smartest guys I know. 
uh, and he's absolutely prescient when it comes to predicting how these things are going to play out. Senator, thank you for your time. Thank you for your book. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be on with you. Man, that guy really is a hero. Totally a hero. And you know what the thing is? I mean, like every soldier and hero who's been on the battlefield in Afghanistan and Iraq and seen some crazy things, and that helps inform their point of view, um, he, he doesn't talk about that, right? He doesn't, he doesn't like try to show you his resume and then give you his point of view. He, he basically describes what he's seeing and historically and brings it all together in a very comparing, uh, compelling that narrative. It, look, I, I, I love Tom Cotton. I've always loved Tom Cotton. He's great. But if you have a, a husband, boyfriend, father, mother, girlfriend, whomever, who is super into foreign policy and super into why the world looks the way that they, it does right now, this is a Christmas gift you got to get. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it it is it, it gives you a point of view that you are just not going to hear anywhere else. And mind you, this is a dude, by the way, who called the lab leak. Yes. Right. Right. I yes. Mean, Which uh, and, and like over the past week, I think uh, it was ProPublica who did an investigation. Like, yeah. Actually, lab leak is the best way right. to like uh, explain this. And Tom Cotton said, "Whoa, this looks like a lab leak." And for for years, he was called a racist. A conspiracy theorist. I mean, do you, do you remember when the crybabies in the New York Times Slack channel melted down because they were printing thing. a column that's written another by thing. him? He 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 has an op-ed where he was like, essentially, we need to restore order during the summer of riots that we had in 2020, and and all the like news uh, journos in the New York Times Slack channel were like, I can't believe we're allowing Tom Cotton to have a voice, and they like they they add this like editor's note crying about it. And then it was just a few days ago, they, they have an op-ed where like, uh, <laughs> we apologize. Or they didn't even apologize. They said actually uh, Tom Cotton ha- kind of had a point. They did not apologize, <laughs> nor did they rehire the people who they fired for allowing Tom Cotton to speak in the New York. I mean, it's insanity. It is insanity. totally nuts. But this is what we're talking yeah. about, this whole thing. And it's especially relevant the last week of an election. Look, you can take our word for it the other 15 months, mm-hmm. right? You can take our word for it. But in the final months before a midterm election, this shit's evident for everybody to see. Yep. You can see it because it is right in front of you. The shit that doesn't add up, all of a sudden they're telling you is fact. They're trying to use social media companies to try to iron in that opinion and eliminate any others. Try to shape your mind to get these leftists elected. And look, I'm not some conspiratorial idiot. This is, this is what it is. That's just a fact. You can't turn away from it. So anyway, it's a good time to talk about all of that shit. I'm glad that we've got Tom Cotton on uh, and he can talk about it. Should we do a quick political rundown? Let's go. Nice. Perfect timing. It one is week, perfect One timing. week from game day. It is perfect. Fellas, to me, it looks like uh, that much dismissed red wave might be arriving. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, like I always say, the red wave is not something that's happening. It's something we're doing. Yep. And our grassroots activists, our listeners, the minions, have been putting in work. Those dials, those door knocks, and now we're seeing it in the polls. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're seeing it in the polls. And so CBS YouGov did a poll uh, with a generic ballot. Guys, you, I, like, you literally won't even believe this. The generic ballot was a 16-point Republican advantage. Jeez. 
<laughs> this is amongst independents, right? So, so typically what happens is you have, you know, you polarize the two sides as you do before every election. Yeah. And then the independents, some of them are more independent than others, but, you know, you average them out and you get a good idea of which way these things are, are going. Right. Um, they broke out the independents in 16-point advantage amongst Republicans. That seems like a problem to wow. me for Democrats. Yeah, because that's the thing that they can't really quantify right now as you've got the mainstream media pouring over mail-in and absentee and and early voting numbers. It's like, ah, you know, Dems are looking good here, not looking so good here. Republicans look, you know, pretty strong here. But what they're not thinking about is the delta between Republicans and Democrats with those independent voters. That other 20%, 22% or whatever that is, you know, voting early and they're like, ah, you know, that might be a wash, you yep. know? And then they're going to wake up on election night and they're going to see that delta and they're going to be like, holy shit, we were wrong. <laughs> we got a real problem. Yeah. But I've also noticed in the tenor, and I'm curious, Ashbrook, in your opinion about this, but I've noticed in the ten- tenor of the coverage that because the conventional wisdom forever has been that House Republicans are going to get a majority here. That there is little talk about the fact that the majority of the spending that's happening in the final week is happening in Biden plus seven districts. No, right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's significant. Which which to me, like what they've done has been like, yeah, I don't know the House is going to be lost. It could be a wave. But these Senate races, boy, are they ever tight. Except for the fact that a lot of these Senate races and House races are happening in the same place, right? Mm-hmm. You got like Nevada, you've got three competitive congressional races in the same place as a competitive governor's race and a competitive senator's race. So like all those things are in the same place. And at one hand, you hear the media talking about how, yes, it's a wave election and Democrats have a big problem in these House races, but these Senate races are so tight. They are just so tight. Yeah. And every headline is, oh, my God, they're so tight. Democrats still hold an edge. <laughs> but, boy, are they tight. And it's like you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Right. You, you can't have – you cannot have multiple New York State pickups without a real problem for Kathy Hochul in the governor's race. Right. Right? You cannot have multiple Nevada problems without – huge problems for Steve Sisolak, the governor of Nevada, and Catherine Cortez Masto, the senator from Nevada. I mean, case in point is this tightest district. I yeah. think that race is neck and neck. It's it, That race is tied. It's inside the margin. And this is a D-plus D 12 district. Wow. I mean, what a perfect example of that. Perfect example. And she is running, I mean, she's running scared, as any incumbent should. She's running scared. That's a ch- we have a chance to pick up that seat. We have a chance to pick up that seat. Just think what that means statewide. And to your point, I mean, this is happening all across the map. It's happening in Ohio. It's happening in New York. And it's happening everywhere. And I think the press is just sort of reaching for something to be close because mm-hmm. this is an absolute uh, dusting of Democrats that's, that's going on across the map. And I think they they need they they want the conflict. They don't want to believe that their favorite party is about to go down in a historically uh, terrible fashion. But the reality is, the wave is coming. It shows up in the polling. But yeah. but, but it's important again. Don't get overconfident. Like I, I, I keep tweeting. No, he's right. Keep he's, folks, you're right. Make like if you listen. If you're listening to this show right now, if you're driving to work, if you're listening to it at home, write down your plan of when you're going to vote. What time of day? Are you going after lunch? Are you going first thing in the morning? Are you going after work? Are you going before dinner? 
write down that plan. Remember, nobody can fire you for voting. That's the thing. They can't. Make sure you have your plan in place. Are are you going to bring a friend? You you 100% should bring as many conservative friends as possible. We got to get those votes in the bag. Polls polls are one thing, but you got to get the votes in the bag. Make your plan to vote because we, you know, all the work that we've all put in matters for nothing unless we get those votes. And it, it requires a plan for most of us. Obviously, we have busy lives. You take care of your kids. You know, you've got all kinds of work obligations and everything else. Your busy lives, or you wouldn't be a conservative in the first place, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. You got to make a plan. You got to do it today, and you got to say a week from today, I am taking this amount of time. And I'm going to go dedicated to vote because it's super important. The other reason why it's super important is because Republicans disproportionately vote on election day, mm-hmm. right? So in order to make up some of these early vote deficits that you see in some of these states, some aren't deficits, which are really interesting. We can talk about it in more detail as we get closer to the weekend. Maybe we'll do Thursday or maybe even next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. But but you you have to have the Republican vote come in on election day hard big time hard right i mean that's if we're gonna get there you gotta show up yeah, you can't so like, count on others your neighbor your, your your buddy when you grab happy hour drinks who's like you know these, these inflation price like the price of everything is so expensive those are the folks you gotta say hey i'm gonna go vote tuesday at six after i i leave work you want to come with i'll give you a ride because that's how it gets done and, and, if, and if you need any more motivation, just open the newspaper. Yeah. Read a story from a journalist who is pushing for single-party rule in this country and know that you have a chance to stick it right in their eye. Yeah, And it. take your chance. Take This is your opportunity to just look at these journos and say, uh-uh, that's not how this country works. I'm in charge. You're not in charge. This is, this exactly. is the first chance we've all had to speak since Joe Biden and, and these Democrats in the House and the Senate have passed all their policies that have caused the prices of gas to go up, have, have caused grocery prices to go up, that have run this country into a ditch. This is our chance to, to answer them. It's I, the only show we've got. I will say um, the Republican wave is happening. It's very interesting, um, the polling that's coming out showing everything so close. And if these races turn out to break all toward Republicans, we're going to have another November and December, where there's a reckoning in, in polling and public polling in particular, mm-hmm. and a big conversation about what went wrong again. Oh, they missed it with Trump the first time. They missed it with Trump the second time. Why can't they get it right? And I think they just don't talk to regular people who are dissatisfied with the, the direction of the well, country. I, I think that's part of it. But this is a real hobby horse of mine, right? Polling was never meant to be a news hook. Polling was meant to be a political tool Mm -hmm. that you use to measure public sentiment to figure out which segments of the electorate are working which which is not what issues they're responding to like and you it it, when you're in the business you understand sort of how things break why they break what it's likely to look at like you know for example in a midterm uh where the presidential approval rating is 40 or sub 40 and your right track wrong track is minus 20 and your economic approval rating, which is the biggest mover of independence, is minus 20. Like, you know what's going to happen instinctively as a political operative has been, been in the business for a long time. You know you're going to have a shift. The question is whether on the day of, a, of the election, it's a two to three point shift, a three to five point shift, or a five plus. Mm-hmm. 
there's only one election that I've ever been a part of in 20 years of doing this where it's been five plus, and that was 2014. I remember that. Right? 2014, we were trailing in seven of seven Senate races in August. They all became close, quote unquote close, in, in October, right? Oh, it's a real coin flip. We don't know who's going to control the Senate. Republicans won nine or 10. I, I forget the exact number, nine or 10 in 2014 because it was a five point plus shift. You had Republic like like Purdue in Georgia, I remember was a perfect example at like 45 in all of the polls. They were like, well, best case scenario, it's a runoff. He won it outright. He won it outright. Five plus shift, right? If we're talking about a five plus point shift in this election, you are going to say hello to Senator General Bullduck. Mm-hmm. You're going to say hello to Senator Masters. Mm-hmm. You're going to say hello to Senator O'Day. Yep. And you're going to say hello to Senator Smiley. I mean, think about how sweet that is to, th- I mean, it just, it, it sounds like Candyland. Yeah. Well, and and, and it, it, it's doable. It's, it's doable. within it is our doable. grasp. In, in 2014, things weren't great. I mean, nobody listening to this show is a huge Obama fan, but nobody was wondering whether he was going to be able to put a sentence together. Nobody was paying twice mm. as much for milk and eggs and gas. That's right. I mean, this economy is awful, and it's brought to you by the people who you have a chance to eliminate next Tuesday. It all it all comes down to election day. Like I cannot stress enough. Find your friend, find your friend who who may not always vote, and tell them this one we got a real shot to make things change because no one's happy with the way things are. Make your plan to vote. We got We got to get the votes in the bag. Yeah. No, and a big one is Pennsylvania, Absolutely. which in my view we're going to find out in the Eastern time zone about how things are going. Oz, Dr. Oz, soon to be Senator Oz, was endorsed by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette over the Which weekend. is wild. Did I you mean, see like, that? I, I think, well, after that debate, I think it became very obvious to everyone who has, who has two eyes and ears that like, okay, come on, come yeah. on. Yeah, well, they said it best. They said, Mr. Fetterman's health, he suffered a serious stroke in May, is not the issue. His lack of transparency, however, in refusing to release his medical records is troubling. Yep. It suggests an impulse to conceal and a mistrust of the of the people. Yes, that's, that's what we've been saying exactly on the it. program. That's exactly what's happening here, right? So, I mean, what do Democrats do? They they deploy Obama. And and you know what's so funny? I've read you guys will remember this, Ashbrook and Duncan in particular, because we've worked these midterms a long time together. What happens during these midterms is they inevitably deploy Obama. Do you remember like the um, uh, the 2018, uh, well, Obama's going to North Carolina and that's a big right. deal because he, he carried the state of North Carolina. Yeah. And that's going to be the, the definitive thing. And, <laughs> you know, like, oh, this is all going to happen. And like it didn't move a fucking inch. Yeah. Right. So, like, this is a big circle jerk amongst Democrats and their partisans in the press to say, like, oh, this is the new thing. This is the new... Don't trust your lying eyes. It's just cope, dude. It's their last-minute cope that's going to keep them all sane for the next week. I also saw some bullshit on CBS News about, oh, well, you know what? I hear a lot of people talking about young voters are going to show up on Election Day, and they're really going to help tip this back. Such and hope. it's like, come on. And the the no, Obama thing is just like, especially so wild in this political environment where they're like, okay, so we look at all the polling and voters are mad about price of gas, price of groceries, inflation, 
economic uh, activity looks horrible. Why don't we find someone from Martha's Vineyard to fly in and tell everybody, no, double down on this. Keep suffering. Thanks, folks. I'm going back to my mansion. Bye. Amazing. Well, listen, I think we've, I think we've covered this. I think most people want to hear from yeah, they do. our girl, Carrie Lake. Let's do it. So let's have it. I want to welcome to the program, I think probably one of our more, most highly anticipated guests uh, that we've had in a long time. Everybody's watching what she's doing on the campaign trail. Everybody's excited about it. Candidate for governor of Arizona, Carrie Lake. Welcome. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Josh. I, I can't believe that. I, I'm hearing that people are watching us, but I'm so focused on Arizona. I feel like this is just a small little election and a small little campaign and we're just doing our thing. So the fact that others are watching us outside of Arizona, it, it amazes me. Yeah, well, you certainly that is certainly the case. And I got to tell you, we've had just about anybody and everybody on this program at some point over the last two years. And I don't remember the clamoring for a guest quite as significantly as this one. So thank you for taking time here in the final week of your campaign to uh, to get some thoughts. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm I'm really honored to be here, and I'm I'm starting to call this Hell Week, kind of like the Navy SEALs do, <laughs> because you know I see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we still it's still a little bit out of reach. We're trying to get there. Yeah, no. So I got to tell you, I remember you when you came back to Arizona. I think it was Fox Ten, or, or, or was that what the yep. station you were at? So I went to school in Arizona State, and and I remember that was there during when you came back. So when you started running for governor, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember her. <laughs> and then, you know, magically, your campaign is not only transformed into a, a, a one that won the nomination and, and now is poised to win the governorship, but you started a movement as well. And I got to imagine, you know, for somebody who's in the news business, as long as you are, it, this has to sort of surprise you, too, a little bit. It does. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm so honored to be a part of this movement. I think it's just an extension of what we've all been through the last few years. People's lives turned upside down, their businesses destroyed in many cases, their churches shut down, our our children uh tortured with masks and other things, and and then an election that people were rocked by. And I I believe they're just waking up. And the the coolest thing is it's not about me. It yeah. isn't. It's just about us. It's about we, the people. Finally, we've had enough. The mama bears, the papa bears are tired of what's going on with their kids. And we've all come together and decided that we can make a difference. It's going to have to take us getting involved. And so I just happen to be maybe the spokesperson for this movement. And um, but I'm just one person of of I think hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people in Arizona and beyond who are ready to fight to take back this republic. And and you know, as the famous words of Benjamin Franklin, you've got a republic if you can keep it. And we are in the if you can keep it part. And I'm happy to report, I think we're going to be able to keep it by what I'm seeing on the ground. Well, it certainly looks like it. And the enthusiasm that we're hearing out of Arizona would certainly indicate that you're totally right about that. I think one of the things that makes your candidacy so unique is your background and the fact that you came from the news business. And look, I, everybody is is fawning over these clips, right? Where the CNN reporter comes in and tries to bully you around like they always do, right? With every Republican <laughs> candidate that looks like they're within a country mile 
of destroying their dreams. They come in and try to sabotage you with a whole bunch of questions that either pit you against fellow Republicans or try to drum up other chaos and you're not having it. Yeah, well, that comes from 30 years in the business. And so I know how they operate. I can see a loaded question from a mile away. They start with a soliloquy and then they push their agenda and you can feel the narrative coming at you. And so I'm just listening and I'm like, oh, I know what they're up to. And I I pounce in my answer. And I'm just not afraid of these people, Josh. I mean, I'm going to be really honest. First of all, 90% of the people in mainstream media, maybe more, are Democrats. And look, you know, you have a right to be a Democrat. That's great. But 90% of them or more in media are Democrats. So you're going to get an ideology of one side being shoved down your throat. And we see it 24-7. And the people in media, a lot of the smart ones have been pushed out because they made too much money, perhaps. they The ones with depth in the market who truly understood each market that they worked in were pushed out in favor of hiring three or four people fresh out of journalism school where they're actually training them to be activists. Right. So the people in the media aren't that smart. It's not hard to outsmart them. I, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, no, I mean, but that's I think just that's a right. fact. I think that's right. I mean, you're just the only one that says that. Right. I mean, look, I remember in Arizona, for example, I mean, when I was there in the late 90s, early 2000s, the media was nowhere near as bad as it is now. Right. I mean, the Arizona Republic in some ways was sort of a center right publication in many, many respects. And, And in the last, you know, five, six, seven years, maybe a little bit longer than that. Everything monolithically is just turned into a left wing activism device. Yeah, We've stopped talking to that paper altogether. We tried. We tried to give them. Interviews where we'd say, okay, if you want to talk about policy, but they've done, you know, three to four hit pieces a week during the primary. Then we finally said, all right, we'll sit down with you. Let's talk about our border policy. That that affects every Arizonan. And the questions, again, were loaded. You could tell they were coming from an angle of somebody who doesn't want a secure border. I went through and did all the work and and we burned them so hard in that interview, they never wrote the article. I mean, we got him. I got him every single turn. They didn't even write the article because it was such a uh, a complete beatdown. And so we just finally said, forget it. We're not going to talk to them. When we give them comments, the comment that I give usually completely uh, goes against their narrative and destroys their whole plot. And so they would not even run my comment. <laughs> and I, I finally just said, I'm not going to deal with these people. They are, are so dishonest. Crazy. They're propagandists and they are trying to stop our movement and stop uh, the people of, of this great state. And so now it's kind of funny to watch them try to get uh, questions answered. And <laughs> I think they're going to go completely under at some point because no one's subscribing to them anymore. Everyone's on to the to the agenda they're pushing. And I don't know how you keep the lights on and pay the bills when no one's subscribing to your your paper. Well, I mean, you're a testament to that, right? I mean, if people took any of that stuff seriously, you wouldn't be sitting here. You certainly wouldn't be leading in a governor's race for Arizona. I mean, it, it, the fact of the matter is, is that they've so discredited themselves over a number of years over really serious things that impact the American people that it's about time that we have somebody that just says the hell with you. Yeah. And, you know, I think you're right, because I, I every day I get up and we get a service that kind of shows us all the headlines being written. And they're just like the worst, the most <laughs> dangerous politician in America. And it's my picture. And I'm thinking, I'm just a mama bear who wants to protect her babies. I just want to make sure we have a secure border and safe streets. Does that make me dangerous? But I am dangerous to their agenda. 
And they, you know, we are, we have so many nasty articles written about us every day. The people have to be onto it or these articles would have brought us down by yeah, now. Totally. But you're right. The people are onto it. And I'm not just talking about us conservatives. I think the people in the middle are onto it as well. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, the interesting thing, I mean, look, you bring the receipts in all of these interviews too, right? I mean, I, I often see you reading the stats back to them that sort of refute their point of view. I mean, did you ever, towards the end of your career in the news business, did it just become so evident that everything around you, colleagues, not even necessarily at your station, but like, you know, competing stations and news publications, that it had become so bad that that, that in any way sort of motivated you? Or is it just kind of the issues alone? Well, I never planned to run for office. That was the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah. I mean, I often said during when I was a journalist, who in their right mind would run for office? It's a, it's a, you know, the personal destruction they with the attack ads and such. How would we ever get someone normal running because it's so destructive? Um, but after during COVID is when my, I really woke up. I realized that there was just an effort to push uh, misinformation, propaganda that's coming from the government and Fauci. And there was no interest in covering anything that would help people, that would help get people better, that would help get their businesses back open, that would help make our streets safe again. There was only an interest in covering stories that uh, incited fear, incited uh, just a kind of at each other's throats, dividing, divisive uh, propaganda. Yeah. And once I realized that that was indeed happening, this was not a you know figment of my imagination. I just realized that's immoral. Yeah. That's not just unethical. That's not biased. That is immoral. And if I continue along these lines, then that makes me immoral. And I got to answer to God. At the end of the day, that's who I'm going to be answering to. And I want that meeting to go well. Yeah. And so <laughs> I decided it's the most important one. I talked to my husband and it was really hard to, st I mean, I made a lot of money. I made a lot of money. Money was never a concern. We did really well to walk away from that kind of security and just completely step away from it and wave goodbye to, to that kind of security. That was my hang up. I'm embarrassed to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's hang up, right? I mean, you think about yourself, your family, your well-being, everything. And, and what's so interesting about your life and career is that you're no stranger to the public light, obviously a well-renowned um, television news anchor, but you don't get the other side of the coin often, right? You don't have people looking for ways to discredit you and looking for ways to just sort of tear your life down. I got to imagine when you switched gears into the political mode, it had to have been a little jarring. <laughs> well, a couple of things. I just thought of something when you said you've lived you know, your life in front of the, in the public eye. And because of that, I have a pretty clean life. So politically, I think they were all salivating like, oh, wait till we get her opposition research. What's going to be out there? And there's just nothing there because I've lived a very public life. And when you're living a public life, you're not out doing stupid stuff. Uh, at least you shouldn't be. Well, you shouldn't and be. so yeah. they didn't have anything on me. They were trying to throw anything they could at me and nothing was sticking. Um, but the sad thing is that I did get along with everybody that I worked with. I had some really great friendships and, you know, most of the people were liberal, but I still got along with everybody. I had good friends. I treated everybody well and kindly and with respect. And when you run for office and you're, you're walking away from that and kind of pulling back the curtain on what's happening in media, um, you know, you get enemies all of a sudden who've been friends for decades with you. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of sad. But I'll tell you what, for every friend I lost from my old life, I should say, 
it's not really my old life, but from my past profession, I have gained dozens of amazing patriotic friends who would do anything for me, who would walk across fire for me, and I would for them. The friends I've gained are so amazing. The people that I've met who love this country are so amazing. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, as grueling as it's been over 500 days on the campaign trail, we've had tens of millions of dollars in attack ads saying the most heinous things. I've had my children followed, photos taken of them, tires yeah, slashed. Let's pause on that, right? Because we're talking about some of the most egregious stuff that they throw at you. That in and of itself has to be a huge life changer for you. I mean, are you are you just at this point, you're so focused on the mission that it doesn't bother you because I mean, for most people who run for office for the first time, that is really hard to get over. Well, I think working in the public eye, you know, you you take criticism. So I would get hate okay. mail occasionally, and so it doesn't. And if someone writes me something nasty, it doesn't really affect me. I know they're looking at the person they saw on TV. They don't know who I am inside, so it doesn't really affect me. I do get very upset that they were going after my kids. Yeah. I mean, talk about wanting to win. That made me. That only motivated me even more to win and defeat these evil people. Um, but yeah, that kind of stuff is really sick and gross. There's some well, bad you people. It. You couldn't handle it any better than you do, right? I mean, you, first of all, you're doing most of this with a big smile on your face, which for a lot of us is incredibly endearing, given the fact that you're going through what you're going through, but then you're holding people accountable, which is- yeah. Look, that's the new wrinkle here. That's what you got to do to be successful conservative in today's world because they're never going to give you a shot, right? Right. Well, they don't they they want to pick who runs. I mean, I, I thought that the media would not go after me because I worked in the media and they knew me personally. They knew that if I'm doing this, I'm doing it from a really good place because I love Arizona. I saw what they did to President Trump and I thought, well, they won't do that to me. That was just President Trump. They didn't like him. These people actually like me and I worked with them. Oh, no, I'm getting the Trump treatment. That's so secret. what it is, is they don't want America first politicians. They don't want citizen politicians. They want people they can control and they can't control President Trump. They can't control people like me and anybody else they're attacking. My new one of my new lines on the campaign trail is whoever the media is attacking the hardest and the most and the most relentlessly is the person you need to vote for. <laughs> because those are the people that they can't control. And those are the people who are truly in this uh, to return and restore our government to we the people. Well, it is well said and, and a lasting lesson of, of your candidacy and what you're going through in Arizona. Uh, Carrie Lake, I got one, I have three questions for you that I got to hit with everybody. <laughs> right. Okay. So this one, it takes a little, you know, it takes a little thought provoking uh, activity. But if you were to plan your last meal on earth, what would it be? Oh, boy. Oh my gosh, do I have to pick one? See, well, I mean, here's the thing. You're, you're, it's your last meal. So you can kind of slide in sideways with this deal. I mean, you can kind of, I mean, sides. Oh, I can have a huge buffet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, a, a good old-fashioned cheeseburger, well done. There you go. Uh, a, a nice thick steak oh, with yeah. potatoes. Filet <laughs> nice. mignon. That That's great. And then um, and maybe some good jerk chicken. Jamaican okay. jerk chicken would be great. Yeah. I mean, that should do it. That should do it. That's that pretty good. Yeah. Three mains. I'm thinking like the last meal, you usually think of that like on death row or something. Hopefully I never have to make that decision from death row. My goodness. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think this is I think this is like three mains. I think that that is a good uh, encapsulation of you and your candidacy for sure. Uh, second question. If you never got into this line of work, let's just blue sky it, right? We know about all of your success as a news anchor and you had just kind of blue sky. You can do anything in the world with your life. What do you think it would be? Gosh, I don't know. I'm so like laser being focused. My whole life is campaign right now that I can't even think outside of that. Um, you know, I really did enjoy my life being a journalist, a true journalist, but unfortunately the machine doesn't do journalism anymore. So maybe I would do something like what you're doing, a podcast where I get to interview people. And um, that was my favorite part, interviewing people, finding out more about them. Well, maybe I, I would- I would if you do a get podcast. a chance at that, I hope it's many years after an incredible, long, successful political yes. career, because this is this. I'd like to hear that. Don't get me wrong. I'd like to hear that. But I, I want you've got some work to do. I do. And so maybe later, maybe we'll do a podcast from the governor's office. How's that? That's perfect. Yeah, <laughs> governor's <accepted>. podcast. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's great. All right. So last question, I got to lay it out for you. Our view is that Almost all successful people on earth are motivated by one of two things, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. And it's not that anybody enjoys losing or that people don't enjoy winning, but it's what motivates you to get to the next goal, the thing that you never thought you'd be able to do. And the thrill of victory, people are always sort of the glass half full, always charging up the hill to the next endeavor, self-motivated kind of individuals. The agony of defeat people, like the best example ever is Michael Jordan, right? Where it's like any success he ever had, he enjoyed for about three and a half minutes, but any defeat or setback that he had, he carried around like a backpack and he worked that much harder to ensure that it never happened to him again. So much so he had to invent things to keep himself motivated, right? So Mm. those those are the two poles. I'm curious as to where you think you find yourself on that spectrum. Well, I don't lose very often, so I guess I'm motivated by victory. <laughs> I'm the youngest of nine children, and if you're from a big family, you know that the the little one is always trying to keep up with the big one. So I came out of my mother's womb, and I said, you know, this is my competition. I looked at my older siblings, and you're always trying to run as fast as them, ride bikes as fast as them, climb as fast as them, swim faster than them. You're always trying to keep up. So my competition was always better than me because they were much older or older, but I was always trying to beat them. And, and oftentimes I would, by the way. So my, I'm pretty competitive. I I I joked that. Really? I didn't know. I didn't pick that up. When my kids were little, uh, we still do. When we play like Marco Polo in the swimming pool, we play to the death. I mean, we will we will leave the swimming pool with scrapes on our arms, you know, bruises. We play every game very competitively, and I absolutely hate to lose. So I guess I'm motivated by victory because I, I hate to lose. There's a, there's an element of agony defeat in there, though, in the end, yep. right? The hatred of losing is part of it. It's <laughs> part of it. Listen, I get it. It makes perfect sense to me. Um Listen, we're all totally behind your candidacy. We can't wait for you to be the next governor of Arizona. Let us know, where can our listeners go to help you and your campaign out here in the final stretch? That's so, so nice of you. Um, you know, we've got the, the, we have had people come in and start helping us out. We were up against kind of the establishment and the, and the uh, 
primary. And thankfully, they've come around. Many of them have come around and they're with us now because they realize we're going to bring common sense solutions to the problems in Arizona. We're going to uh, secure that border, protect the rest of the country as well. So they can go to carrylake.com. You know, I've had a lot of support from the establishment. Unfortunately, Blake Masters, who's running in the U.S. Senate, you know, Mitch McConnell really just abandoned him. It's disgusting that that's happened. So people should go over to, to Blake Masters' page and support all of our candidates here on the Republican ticket in Arizona. We need each and every one of them to win so we can be successful in securing our border, restoring law and order to our streets, saving and protecting our children from this just terrible curriculum that's trying to brainwash them and psychologically abuse them. We need everyone in America to help us out here in Arizona. I think we are the state that will help save the country. Yeah. Well, listen, I got a little different interpretation of my my interactions with Mitch McConnell than you do, but that's for another day because this is all <laughs> about all of us throwing an arm around everybody and we have to win. There's no joke. No, no, this, there is not another election that is more important with this one. If we have two more years of democratic run federal governments, state governments, local governments, we're in a world of trouble. We, we won't be able to recover from that. So failure is not an option, ladies and gentlemen. It's not an option. Thank you for what you're doing. Go win one. and We'll talk uh, after your governor. Looking forward to it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Lake, Carrie Lake, ladies and gentlemen. Laura, I, I mean, first of all, she is terrific. She's really, really good at articulating all of the deficiencies within the Democratic Party, within the within the press that covers her. I mean, she has no fear. All of that is just like it's a next generation Republican, which I absolutely love. One quibble I'll have is what she closed with, right? She mentioned during the course of her interview that it doesn't bother her when people criticize her because they don't know her, right? But she was she was more than happy to criticize Mitch McConnell for what a perceived decision in her colleague Blake Masters in the Senate race. She doesn't know, right? And I'm okay with that. It's not the time to litigate that. It is the time to get us all on the same page, run through the tape over the next seven days, make sure that we have Republicans. We'll deal with leadership shit later. We'll deal with all that stuff when the time comes. And trust me, the stats don't lie. And, and, and I am I'm so looking forward to having uh, Blake Masters in the Senate. Like I said, I've, I've personally given to Blake. That's my candidate that I picked this cycle. I think it's going to take everybody in Arizona because here's the thing is, again, we cannot, you know, get lazy. We cannot rest on our laurels. Everybody in Arizona, get out there. Get every conservative you know. Get them to vote because because having having Lake and Blake, I mean, can you imagine that? That's uh, it, all our dreams are possible. That's the thing is it, it's so close. The reality that we want the way to stop this agenda that the left has imposed upon us. And it's so close and we can make it happen. I think that I think the most important point is what you just made. If you would have told us a year and a half ago when we started talking about red wave, mm -hmm. when we started talking about a pushback on the excesses of Democratic leadership, if you'd have told us that we had this opportunity one week before Election Day, we would have high-fived and said, this is exactly what we want. Mm -hmm. Now it's about time to go make it happen. That's right. That's right. And I got to say, absolute banger of an episode, gentlemen. Thank you so much, Carrie Lake. Thank you so much, Senator Tom Cotton. So until next time, Minions, keep the faith, hold the line, 
and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.